0: From the heart.org radio, this is The Fellow's Corner.
1: My name is Arun Thakani, and I'm a cardiology fellow at Barnes-Jewish Hospital here in St. Louis. It is a pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Deepak Bhatt. Formerly of Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Bhatt is now the chief of cardiology of the VA Boston Healthcare System, a senior clinical investigator participating in the TIMI group, as well as the head of the interventional program at the Brigham Women's Hospital and the VA at Boston. Our discussion here will contribute to the Fellows Corner group of audio recordings emphasizing early career development in the field of academic cardiology. Dr. Bott, welcome to St. Louis, and it is indeed a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Well, thanks so much, Arun. It's really been a treat being here at your institution. I've had a wonderful day so far, and uh, I'm looking forward to more. Oh, well, I'm
1: very glad. Well, my first question, sir, um, for fellows interested in pursuing clinical research, what do you believe were the essential factors that led to your personal maturation from a fellow who maybe hadn't done a lot of clinical research to a mature, independent investigator?
0: Well, I think that's a terrific question, and You know, fellowship's just a wonderful time in life where basically, as a fellow, you're for the most part undifferentiated, and, you know, the world is your oyster. You can do whatever you want to at that stage. And I think the key thing is just trying to figure out what you enjoy doing. I mean, that's the most important thing to do, and presumably if someone's in in a cardiology fellowship, they enjoy clinical care. So the real question is, uh, of all the things you could do, do you like imaging, do you like procedural care and deciding upon, uh, I guess, a sub-subspecialty or deciding that you like it all and want to be a general cardiologist. So I think that's an important step that in part then is linked to whether you enjoy doing research uh, or, or not. And I think everybody ought to do research as part of their fellowship, even if they don't really have an intent to it again just to give them an appreciation of the research process and so that when they're reading the medical literature in the future they can evaluate it in a more critical sort of way uh, so i think doing research is just good for that reason and just you know for for intellectual uh, reasons but uh if somebody's really potentially considering an academic career, then I think it's important to do research to see whether that's something that you want to do as as a good chunk of of the rest of your professional life. So I think the best way to feel out whether um, a research uh, career or or, or at least part of a career being um, uh, tied to research is to actually do it. And I think fellowship's a great time to start. I I think for anyone that might be listening that's, you know, Uh, A resident, uh, for example, I I think starting sooner is better than starting later, even if you haven't completely figured out what you want to do in cardiology. So it it might not make sense if you haven't figured out whether you're going to do general cardiology or imaging or prevention or or EP intervention or something like that. It it, it would make sense to pick a more general project as opposed to, you know, studying a particular type of stent and bifurcation lesions. I mean, that wouldn't be of of broad relevance uh, unless you went into interventional cardiology. may not be. Of much use uh, uh, in the future. So I, I think tackling broad topics of general interest are, are a good way to get involved with cardiology research, and, and, and the sooner the better, in, in some shape or form, and even if it's just assisting in a project as a resident or, or first year fellow, that's a good entry point. I, I think one mistake. Uh, not, it's not really a mistake, but but for people that want to go into research, one one thing that they do that isn't such a good strategy is just wait. That is, you know, it, there's always something in life that. Um Seems pressing. So you know, when you're in your second year of residency, well, of course, there's applying for fellowship. When it's in your third year, then there's getting ready to move potentially. And when you're a first-year fellow, well, there's preparing for internal medicine boards and getting used to a new city. So you know, there's always something, and it's it's easy to just postpone when you're going to get uh, serious about exploring research perhaps to a point where it really is too late and to do it in a meaningful way. So I guess my advice would be uh, start early and find something that's just of of broad interest such that whatever you end up doing later on in life, it's of some uh, relevance.
1: Okay. Um, Along those lines, what kinds of, um, how did you learn about the nuts and bolts of doing clinical research um, while you were at the Cleveland Clinic? What kinds of uh, activities uh, did you participate in while you were there during your training period?
0: Well, I think there are a couple of different ways of learning. There's, of course, uh, the uh, medicine paradigm where you just essentially learn on the job, learn by doing, sort of the uh, see one, uh, do one, teach one model that can be pretty good even, I think, for learning uh, uh, clinical research. So I think it's important to be uh, at a place and and, and with um, uh, attendings that have such interest and involve fellows in a meaningful way in research. I think, though, there are more formal ways of doing it, too, that can be complementary to that uh, on-the-job uh, training, and, and in some respects might even be uh, better. You know? And what I'm specifically speaking about are the different master's-level programs that are out there, MPHs, master's in clinical epidemiology, master's in clinical research, a number of different institutions offer these sort of programs. And I think for someone that's really... Uh, committed to a clinical research career, or thinks that they might want to go down that path, such training can be very useful because even though you can learn a lot of things about clinical research on the job um, it 's sort of like basic science in some respects, where I think thirty years ago you could be an m d and you know and go on and have your own basic science lab and be quite productive and competitive now in two thousand and nine that 's Extremely challenging to do that uh, for basic science. That is, without a PhD and, in some cases, a PhD and a postdoc or two under your belt, it can be challenging to to get funding. Uh, and uh, everything that goes along with that protected research time, et cetera. And and I think clinical research is evolving in a similar way uh, where uh, I think having a master's degree can be quite useful. Not an essential, but I think it can be useful both in terms of enhancing one's own competitiveness, but but more importantly in just uh, acquiring the basic skill set with respect to statistics and and thinking about uh, clinical trial design.
1: I see. Um, Along these lines, for, for aspiring fellows um, or leaning towards a uh, career in clinical research, what are the institutional and funding obstacles that you may have encountered? And with your answer, in your answer, could you also expand on the role that industry plays uh, in uh, promoting re- clinical research?
0: Sure. Well, I think uh, there are lots of different ways to get funded to do research. Of course, there's the NIH, and right now there's a lot of excitement about that because of this whole stimulus uh, plan and um, lots of merit in in that sort of uh, funding. There's AHA funding, different awards from the ACC, uh, both uh, local awards, uh, national level awards, for example, with the AHA. So there are different sources, and and I think um, these are all excellent. But I think quite complementary to those sources are industry. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the role of industry and in academia as of late. But I think that uh, industry funded research is just an important part of medical research. And if anything, more true in cardiology and perhaps even more true in uh, interventional cardiology. So I think uh, as academicians, with appropriate firewalls uh, and, and safety mechanisms in place, we really ought to embrace collaboration with industry. Uh, I've worked with a lot of folks uh, from industry through the years, and there are a lot of smart MDs and PhDs and MD-PhDs and MPHs and, and and all sorts of, and PharmDs and all sorts of people uh, that work in industry and um just because they're you know working for a company doesn't make them in in my opinion somehow tainted i think they can bring a lot to the table in terms of skill sets and uh... just a knowledge base that can really enhance an academician's ability to do research and in particular do research that's practical so obviously you know one's got to be careful uh... with any sort of relationship where uh... you know money is involved Uh, whether it's grants or consulting or that sort of thing. But, you know, that potential uh, exists regardless of the funding mechanism. That's not specific just to industry. So uh, I'm a big believer in industry academic collaboration. I think a lot of good things have come. Uh, out of such collaboration through the years. I think it benefits patients, and I think it's good for the people involved, both from the industry side and the academic side, and and I think with appropriate uh, safeguards, uh, that's really been a uh, strong point in American medicine.
1: Obviously, personal passion and energy is required in any investigative endeavor, be it basic science translation or clinical research. How important and what role do you believe the environment in which one is trained plays, particularly in regards to mentor- mentorship? And in answering that question, when did you go from primary, primarily being mentored to being more of an independent clinician asking important questions?
0: You know, I think those are really insightful questions. The environment is pretty important. Uh, There's just no question about that. I I, I think unless you're at an institution that believes in in, in fostering um, your development as a professional, as a person, as an academician, you know, it's just not going to happen, or at least it's not going to happen easily. Uh, So really there has to be the right environment where there's actually time uh, devoted for pursuing research and uh, resources and infrastructure in terms of all sorts of things, secretarial support, statistical support, Graphical support without those things it makes uh, uh, becoming an academician really quite challenging, not impossible though but much more challenging uh, i I do want to emphasize though that I don't think those things are absolutely essential for someone that really has a passion for research because these days, in particular, it's so easy to collaborate across institutional lines I mean with email and phone and fax it's very easy to collaborate with investigators in other states or for that matter other countries so i I think if you know there are fellows that are in at institutions where maybe the infrastructure isn't so great um for research support, there's um lots of opportunities to reach out to investigators at other centers and collaborate with them. Uh, either informally, just by, you know, picking up the phone or sending an email, or through more formal mechanisms, such as through the AHA, uh, submitting requests to to databases, such as the AHA Get With the Guidelines or the ACC Action Registry. Um, This allows a fellow in an institution who uh, may not be at a place where there's a lot of support for clinical research to be able to collaborate with uh, seasoned investigators at other institutions with... uh, a database uh, that's established, uh, that's vetted, uh, that's uh, well-known, and that has a track record of success. So there definitely are ways of doing research uh, outside of doing it in one's own institution. But but obviously the easiest uh, path is if one is at a place where, where the infrastructure and everything is just right. Now, as part of that, I, I do think mentorship is important. Though again, the mentor doesn't absolutely have to be at the same institution, though that's preferable, uh, just because that makes, again, life easier. Uh, and, and I don't think the mentor necessarily has to be in the exact same area of interest. Again, it helps uh, uh, because that person can then uh, throw different uh, projects and, and, and uh, papers your way. But but I think even more important than that is just somebody that really is a good person, that has your best interest at heart, and... Uh, Understands how life works. And, and that sort of person, even if they're not in your exact uh, field of, of sub-sub specialty, can still provide good general advice in terms of how to carve a, a path in academic life. So uh, I, I do think it's important to identify someone like that. And it doesn't necessarily need to even be a someone. I, I think it actually helps to have, uh, you know, different people to call upon for different facets of, of, of mentorship. That is, some people will be particularly good about helping you with a specific research goal that you have. Other people will be particularly good about how to navigate the path from you know being a lecturer to an assistant professor and, uh, up the academic ladder, so to speak. Uh, other people will be particularly skilled perhaps giving you advice uh, about grants and how to obtain them. Others may yet provide advice on how to balance life, whether it's family life or professional life. So uh, I think having Uh, you know, a a number of folks that you can call upon as mentors is important. Uh, And uh, again, I don't think it has to necessarily be even uh, at your own institution, especially if you've got a number of people that you're drawing upon for their experience and expertise and wisdom. You know, in terms of uh, how long one needs a mentor, or so forth. I think we always need mentors and people that can advise us and give us uh, good advice at all stages in life, in all aspects of life. I think it's, you know, a mistake for people to ever think that, uh, you know, that they're really flying solo or independent. We're always dependent on other people's uh, advice and, and, and goodwill. So uh, I think that at any stage in life, from you know being a college student to, to being a uh, full professor. Uh, It's always wise to have people that you can call if there's an issue in professional or, for that matter, personal life where where you need some good, unbiased advice.
1: I see. I'd like to take the uh, questioning in a little, uh, in a different direction for the remaining few moments that we have. Uh, Despite the tremendous amount of clinical investigation that you're involved with, uh, you're still very active as the head of the interventional training program at the VA and Brigham Women's Hospital. Could you discuss how you balance your clinical responsibilities with your clinical research, bearing in mind that many fellows now are looking for academic positions and maybe negotiating with issues of protected time?
0: Those are really good, uh, albeit complex, uh, questions. Uh, First of all, I think uh, really... um, the onus is on the faculty to provide a climate that's good for academic development. I mean, a lot of times, you know, fellowship programs and, and, and directors sort of chastise the fellows and say, oh, you know, we want you to be going into academics, you should be doing research, why are you going into private practice? And I think it's first important to, to not look down on any career path. So, I mean, I think if a fellow I trained goes off into private practice, I don't feel that that's a failure. I think if they're providing excellent clinical care, that's Terrific. I mean, that's, after all, why we all went into medicine initially. It was, uh, uh, for the most part, because people uh, love patient care. Likewise, if they happen to go into industry, and, and that's where um, their path and passion lies, terrific. I think there's a lot of contributions one can make uh, from industry. Uh, you have the ability to affect uh, thousands or millions of lives uh, from from research. And, and, and likewise, if they take an academic path, you know, terrific. That's um as something, of course, that at academic centers uh, everyone is really uh, hoping will happen. Um, there's also realities that, that you know. There's uh, academic positions out there, but it's not an unlimited number of academic positions. So uh, it's also a bit of a competitive field. And if a person, fellow, has got particular uh, geographic constraints, well, then that can really make finding an academic position even more challenging, and I think it's important to to factor in all these different issues but um, but to really answer your uh, question, I think um, you know faculty have got to make academic life seem appealing, and that does include providing opportunities for fellows to develop an area of expertise to uh, you know write and be first author on different uh, analyses and papers, and understand that academic life is actually fun. I mean, if all that uh, a fellow sees is, you know, their faculty complaining about how you know painful life is or how they never have time to, to do anything or how poorly paid they are, well, then you know, that's not going to make anyone want to follow uh, in the footsteps of, of that faculty member. So, I think it's important to be honest and, you know, point out that uh, academic life isn't all, uh, you know, uh, the land of milk and honey, but still that there's a, a lot of aspects of it that, that are extremely uh, fulfilling professionally. and. Try to show and share those experiences um, with any interested fellow, so I, I think uh, that is something that really is a responsibility of uh, faculty. I don't think faculty always do that well, and I think it's it's difficult. Um, because in the current era, of course, faculty everywhere are under the pressure to produce, and I don't mean produce uh, in terms of publications. I mean produce in terms of RVUs. That's uh, uh, going around the country. It's just been a, a refrain I've heard from faculty members all over that uh, even though they're at academic centers, they're you know being asked to increase clinical volume and, and productivity, and, and that's not easy if you're also trying to write and get grants and and do research or just sit around and think about the next good idea. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's a tough uh, sort of um, environment right now in academia, and I think for that reason it's particularly important that we uh, try to encourage fellows who are interested uh, to go down that path and to try to support them, especially early
1: on so they don't get discouraged with the whole process. Well, for my last question, uh, Dr. Bott, as a clinician on the Forefront of research in the pharmacology of acute coronary syndrome. What do you see in the future as exciting areas of investigation that we will be hearing about in the next five to ten years? And how should current fellows interested in clinical research position themselves now for what may be coming later? And a secondary question to that how do you imagine the cath lab of the future being different from it is today?
0: Well, Arun, I've looked into the future, and the future that I see is nanoparticles. That's what I think the future of intervention will be. No, I'm partially kidding. Just for our audience who doesn't know, Arun, he's got an interest in nanoparticles and will be focusing Uh, on the uh, role of nanoparticles in in acute vascular injury for the next few years. Um, And and actually, I think that's a terrific area. I actually think that's the sort of innovative work that we need to really transform cardiovascular medicine. I mean, a lot of what's going on now, and I'm certainly part of this, is, you know, is is this drug incrementally better than that drug? And and I think there's value in that in terms of reducing... uh, ischemic rates, bleeding, uh, other complications. But you know what will really move the forward are transformative ideas such as nanoparticles or stem cell therapy or gene therapy or biodegradable stents. And I don't know which of those things will really pan out and be useful, but, but the the point is that it's that sort of cutting-edge science that will really move the field forward in ways that we can't imagine right now. And I think... Being involved in that sort of area uh, as a fellow is just a a wonderful experience, uh, irrespective of whether what you might be studying pans out or not. I think just the skill sets gained and just the ability to really contribute to knowledge on a fundamental level is, is, is unmatched as far as things that people can do. You know, the cath lab of the future, it's hard to know what it will be. I think interventional cardiology, which I know is your interest, has got a bright future, I think, for acute coronary syndromes, for example. It's going to remain a central part of their treatment. That is, the cath lab will remain a central part of their treatment. And even for stable disease for patients with really bad symptoms, I think, the cath lab will remain important. Coronary artery disease uh, hasn't vanished yet, and I don't think it will anytime soon. So I, I think the bread and butter of the cath lab, coronary artery disease, in particular unstable coronary artery disease, will remain an important focus. But beyond that, I see the cath lab expanding to treat valvular heart disease. I do think a percutaneous aortic valves for aortic stenosis will eventually uh, become a standard treatment, uh, certainly for patients who are not good surgical candidates, but eventually, I think, even for patients who are reasonable surgical candidates, mitral valves have a, a bit further to go, I think, before they're ready for prime time. I think the treatment of carotid and uh, cerebrovascular disease in general Uh, is going to continue to be an area of interest, but also eventually of much greater activity by interventional cardiologists. I'm still hopeful that acute stroke therapies will be revolutionized the same way that acute myocardial infarction has been revolutionized by the catheterization laboratory. I think peripheral arterial disease will uh, be diagnosed much more commonly in the future, and for appropriate patients who've really got uh, symptoms that might benefit from revascularization, I think, we'll see more in the way of uh, endovascular procedures. So just through a, a lot of different um, trends in, in in vascular disease and valvular disease, I, I do think that interventional cardiology will continue to grow and to evolve. There's, it, it's just hard to predict where things might go. I mean, there are all sorts of... Technologies that are relatively young and it, it, it's hard to know which ones will pan out stem cells for myocardial regeneration, if that pans out, that could be something uh, that is a part and parcel of the modern uh, catheterization lab if If percutaneous treatments for hypertension pan out, well, hypertension is a very common condition that could be something that really becomes a a big part of what catheterization laboratories do. So there are just so many different innovative uh, technologies being evaluated, and even though uh, perhaps the majority of them won't uh, ultimately pan out, I think enough of them will that it will completely change the way the catheterization lab of the future uh, is perceived. But I think that will be in good way. So, you know, for people that are interested in, interventional cardiology or just cardiovascular medicine in general, I think it's a very bright future.
1: Well, Dr. Abbott, thank you very much for your uh, very insightful answers, and uh, please uh, enjoy your visit here to our institution in St. Louis. Well, thank you very much, Arun.
0: You've been listening to The Fellow's Corner on the TheHeart.org Radio.